We've been looking at the life of David uh, over the course of the last number of months, and we've been looking at him as a man after God's own heart, and he's an amazing leader. We've looked at him coming from the sheep pasture, and now he has ascended all the way to the throne. He is in the palace. Um, He's slain a giant. He's killed his ten thousands. He has dodged Saul's wrath. He's united 12 tribes. He has now brought up the ark and danced before it, leading into Jerusalem. And the Bible says that God has caused him to be at rest with all his enemies. Look with me at seven, chapter 7, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. Now... When the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David is here in this place of prestige and he has secured the nation again and he is now in the newly captured city of Jerusalem which is forever to be known as the city of David. And he is there having uh, had a palace of cedar and tremendous wealth built for him and he's looking all around and he surveys this new capital and he thinks to himself, something's wrong here. This isn't right. How is it that I live in a house of cedar and God's ark lives in a tent? Seems like an honest question, doesn't it? And it's it's very natural that David would want to do something really big for God because God has done a lot of really big things for David. So he mentions to, uh, to Nathan, the prophet, Someone who we haven't heard about him before in this story, but Nathan is a very significant figure in David's life and will be. We'll we'll see Nathan again. Nathan has replaced the prophet Samuel who has died and we read about that in 1 Samuel 25 and all of Israel gathered and mourned for Samuel's death. He left a huge void in the spiritual life of Israel. But Nathan is now the man. He is the prophet of God. He has the ear of the king, and he will also have the ear of his son when he succeeds him. And the king is musing with the prophet as he's probably walking by, and he, and he says to Nathan, this is not right. I don't, I don't like how this makes me feel. Something's wrong here. I'm living in the lap of luxury and God's ark is sitting over there in a tent. We have permanent residence here. We are no longer nomadic. We are no longer moving into the promised land. We're here. And why is it that I live in a palace and God's ark is residing in a tent? Nathan's tracking with him. Nathan's like, yeah, man. He he doesn't disagree with him. He, He doesn't... He doesn't disagree. In fact, he says to David, you do all that's in your heart because God is with you. Wouldn't you like for it to be said of you 
God is with you. It could be the greatest thing ever said of any of us that God is with us. Here's the clue. If you want God to be with you, you better be with God. So he says, do it all. I can relate to Nathan here. I've been in, I've, I've been in pastoral ministry for 30 years. And, and I, I have to say to you, I get excited when people want to do big things for God. <laughs> it excites me, probably because so many people are only interested in what God can do for them. So anytime someone comes up and says, I want to do this for God, it gets my attention. It's, it's refreshing. It's refreshing when you hear people say things like, I've said to the Lord, here I am, send me, or... I believe God's called me to do this thing. I heard the Lord and I'm encouraged in this way of serving him. That excites me. But we have to remember, we haven't heard from God yet. Thus far, we've heard from David and we've heard from Nathan, but we haven't heard from God. Nathan hasn't even prayed about it. He just, he just said, do it. Do it. God's with you, man. Go. I like Nate. You, but I like this Nate too. But look what happens next. Verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Did you catch the authoritative introduction? Thus saith the Lord. (laughs) When you have that at the opening of what's being said, you probably want to pay attention. Thus says the Lord. It gets David's attention. It got Nathan's attention. And when Nathan went and delivered it to David, they're both paying attention. God makes it abundantly clear that David... And his building a house for God, though in and of itself is not a bad idea, it is not what God had historically asked for, and it is not currently what God is asking David for. It's really critical that as his people, we learn to hear his voice. This is critical to effective Discipleship. If you want to be an effective disciple of Christ Jesus, you need to know his voice. You need to know when he speaks. You, if you don't know what God is saying, need to take the time and exert the energy to find out. Because The promise is that we would know his voice. Jesus said it in John 10 when he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That is how God intends it to be. 
He intends for his people to know his voice. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people because they don't know what God is saying. And then they resort, we all resort, to assuming that we know what God would say if we were to hear what God said. Do you hear me? As Bob Mumford would say, hello? (laughs) We assume we know what he would say, but we never heard him say it. We think we know what God would say if he were to say something, but we haven't taken the time to be in his presence to know what he said. That's as much of an indictment upon us as if we never cared what God said in the first place. To assume, to assume that we know what he would say and we've never sought him to find out what he's saying is sin. And it's far less than what God intends for his people. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. Do you hear him calling? Do you know the voice of Jesus? When was the last time you heard it? When was the last time you heard God give you direction, encouragement, speak to you? Some of you are looking at me like, that's possible? That really happens today? Isn't that just for the Bible times? No. Jesus' word didn't have a time limit put on it. He didn't say, my sheep in the first century will hear my voice. He didn't say, my sheep who are standing with me right now will hear my voice. He said, my sheep. Now, anybody here a sheep of the Lord? All right, some of your hands. You don't have to raise your hands. You know who you are. He does too. My sheep. Know my voice. I, this is just a point, and I'm not, this is not in my notes. I, I wonder if we really examined our lives, if we could put on a graph or put on a chart or put in some sort of spreadsheet. When was the last time you heard God's voice? When? I think he would say this, or his, you know, I know that that's what he said before. I want to know what he's saying today. And it's possible to know that. Now, that's a whole other sermon on how to hear his voice. I'm just saying to you the importance of hearing it today. My sheep will know my voice. Look further at what happens with David and Nathan as Nathan continues to give this message to David. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David... Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for all my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, 
and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. The story starts with David wanting to build something from God, for God. And it ends with God saying, I'm going to build something for you. Why don't you think about that for a minute? It starts with David seemingly having a noble ambition to do something great and grand for God. And God says, you're missing the point. I want to do something for you. I don't desire a house of cedar and stone that, that can decay and erode. Have I asked for that ever before? I desire to make you, David. I desire for for. You to be made a house, not for you to make me a house. I want to make you like the, think of the house of Windsor, right? The, the, the royal family in England. The house of David. This is the royal lineage, the dynasty. This is the heritage that God is establishing even here with David. He's saying, I'm going to do something that is great because out of that is going to be redemption offered to all of mankind. It isn't what you do for me, David, but what I do for you. It's what I do to you. It's what I do through you. God, in essence, is saying, I don't need you to build. I'm the builder. Here's the hard, cold fact. God never asked David to build him a house. And I have to ask myself, how many of us are building for God what he never asked for? How many of us are doing things for him that he never instructed us in? How many of us are assuming we know what he would want when we've never taken the time to ask? God was doing something of greater significance, even greater than David could even really imagine. God was building the house of David and his descendants so that he could reveal in this lineage the plan for redemption. The promise God is making to David had multiple layers to it. And it's great if you look at these verses and begin to see that he's speaking of Solomon and the other kings who would come after, but he's also speaking of Jesus, 
who was of David's lineage. It certainly included Solomon, who would, yes, indeed, build a physical house. We read about it in Kings and Chronicles. But it also refers to the son of David who would come much later, who was greater than Solomon. A descendant who would suffer the rod of men for the sins of David's line and ultimately for the sins of God's people, including your sin and mine. He was talking of Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who was promised, the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, the one who suffered and died and was buried and rose again and ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ever making intercession for us. And he is the king. There is no other king. This is the king that's being prophesied here in 2 Samuel 7. At the heart of what's going on here is God making covenant with David. And to be honest, as American citizens in the year 2020, we don't understand covenant language very well. We understand contracts, but we don't understand covenant. Our lives are, uh, are filled with contractual agreements. Uh, even though we seldom read them, we sign them all the time. Anybody, anybody read every single word of any contract you've ever signed? There may be somebody. I don't see their hand, though. It's daunting to look at all the fine print. I mean, we sign contracts for everything. Our mortgage, our lease, our car note. We don't have credit cards because we went to Dave Ramsey, but if we did, we'd sign one for that too. I heard that nervous laughter going through the audience. We, we sign a contract when we buy a new iPhone and when we increase our data plan. And we even have to check a little box that says that we have read the user agreement and terms of service in order to post on Facebook or to play Candy Crush. Every app that you purchase requires an agreement on your part. It's a contract. We sign them all the time. Even when we don't read them, we sign them. These are all contracts. While there's a lot of distinction between a contract and a covenant, I would just put it simply like this. A contract is rooted in the performance of two parties. While a covenant is rooted in the promise of only one. You see, if two parties enter into a contract and one of them doesn't live up to their end of the bargain, that contract is null and void. But if someone, for example, a married couple comes and enters into covenant with God in marriage, the vow says for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. Doesn't matter whether they can meet their responsibilities, it matters whether I'm committed to it or not. And so a covenant is rooted in promise, whereas a contract is rooted in performance. And let me just say God doesn't relate to us contractually. We, we don't sign at the back of the table, back table as you're leaving, a contract every week. Can you imagine what that would be like? 
We'd be ripping up a lot of contracts. None of us would be able to live up to it. You know? We couldn't. All the fine print we wouldn't even read. And if we did, we wouldn't have been able to do it. God doesn't relate to us contractually. He relates to us covenantally. Out of his covenant for us, out of his good nature, out of his desire to see his redemptive plan work regardless of whether we fail or succeed. Knowing and following God doesn't come out of us signing a contract with him where we're expected to perform. It comes out of the covenant he makes with us, which is based in his promise. Now, I can almost hear people say, but, but, aren't we supposed to obey? Don't we have responsibilities? Aren't we to live up to our end of the bargain? Our obedience is paramount to benefiting from God's covenant, but it's not the basis for it. Our obedience If you want to get in on the goodness of God, if you want to get in on his covenant love for you, it would be super helpful and really probably necessary for you to obey to get the full benefit. But your obedience is not what gets you the covenant promise in the first place. God offered that already. He makes covenant even when you're not able to keep it. And for that, I'm very grateful Yes, our obedience benefits us in getting in on the good things of God. But he's covenantally true to his word, whether I live up to it or not. He doesn't change. The basis of our relationship with Christ is not my performance, it's his. The basis of my relationship with him is even beyond his performance and rest in his promise. His promise, and the only thing that is required for us is to hear him and believe. That's our end of the bargain. When we hear what he offers, and we're like, who could pass that up? (laughs) That sounds great. You're going to do all that stuff, and I just have to listen and believe. Pastor John Piper said, When God makes a covenant, he reveals his own job description and signs it. In almost every case, he comes to the covenant partner, lays his job description out and says, this is how I will work for you with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength. If you will love me as I am, cleave to me and trust me to keep my word. Now look at the part we have to play in what John just said. We're to love him, we're to cleave to him, and we're to trust him. But all the stuff he does for us because of his covenant faithfulness, it far outweighs what we do. At the center of God's covenant with David is his promise in action on David's behalf. God's the one that does the heavy lifting here. (laughs) We get by easy. If you're just looking at comparing, comparing notes, God's the one that does all the heavy lifting. And what he asks from us, love me, cleave to me. 
trust me. That's what he's asking. <clears throat> Look at all the things that he did and will do for David. It's listed in the verses we just said. Verse 8. I took you from the pasture and I made you prince over my people. Verse 9. I have been with you and I cut off your enemies and I will make your name great. Verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people. This is God speaking. This is what God is doing. Verse 11, I will give you rest from your enemies and I will make a house for you. Verse 12, I will raise up your descendants and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's doing all the work here? Who? God is. God's doing the heavy lifting. God is the one making the promise and a covenant extended to his servant. And you think God's surprised by the fact that David's going to sin against him in just a few years later? Do you think God is surprised by the fact that David is going to fail miserably and have and, and, and involved in an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then kill, his, kill her husband in order to cover up the sin? Do you think God's surprised by that when he made this covenant with David? He disciplined him for it, no doubt, but it didn't keep him from making the covenant. It's more about God and what God will do and less about us and what we're able to do. All that he asks of David is to believe, is to love him, is to cleave to him, is to trust him, is to stay with him. That's all he asks of you and me. He's going to do the building. We just do the loving, cleaving, and trusting. See, I, I let the G off on each of those. Thank you. I'm not saying that there's not a time for us to act. Certainly there's a time always for obeying. And there is times for pursuing. And there are times for building. These things are ultimately necessary when God initiates it. Did you notice David was never asked by God to do this? So it wasn't an issue of obedience. It was an issue of David's initiative to make himself look pretty good. Eugene Peterson says, I think the problem with this whole issue was that David was getting the big head. So much had been happening for him, and we do this too, right? We get so invested in the things of God, things are going great, and all of a sudden, somehow, we start thinking we had something to do with it. It always was God, it always will be God, and the moment that we think that it's us, that's idolatry. And God is a jealous God. He doesn't let anything take his credit, including us. And so David was beginning to think, sure, I'm sure there was some mixture of motive. But deep down inside, he wanted to see how impressive he could be on behalf of God. I understand this. A good portion of my early ministry was about what I was doing for God and less about whose I was. You see, our identity is not found in what we do. It's found in whose we are. 
We belong to Christ, which is what gives us identity. Not that we do all these great things for him because quickly we start getting our value and significance out of those doings and less about being in his presence. Think of Mary and Martha. Martha's busy doing stuff to serve God. And she's mad at her sister who's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. I'd be mad too. Come on, woman. Get up and help me out a little bit here. They're sisters. You know they had some really honest words with each other about this. And, and Martha is so irritated with Mary for just being at his feet that she finally takes up her offense with Jesus, which was not a really good idea. Because she thought she was doing the right thing. Did you notice that? She thought what her service was was more important than what Mary was doing. And when we are doers, we do too. We think what we're doing is the most important thing to God and everybody else. Can't you people see it? How much I'm doing for you and for God. Why aren't you more appreciative of me? Um, this is, I, I struggle with this sometimes. I go above and beyond because I believe that's what God's called me to do. And when people don't appreciate it, I get mad. You're like, whoa, he's the pastor. Uh, yeah. And I still get irritated with that because I think I've done so much. And the moment that I get to that point, I realize that's not their issue. And it's not God's issue. It's my issue. Martha is irritated with Mary because she's just sitting and she's busy doing. And she says to Jesus, make my sister do more. And Jesus said, Martha, you've chosen the wrong thing. Mary chose the better thing. It's not that things don't need to get done. But the moment you get all of your identity out of what you do and not out of whose you are, you've gotten them upside down. The only way you can do things that are pleasing to God is when it comes out of your relationship with God, not trying to earn good favor and merit with him. I'm not saying that none of our actions can add, or are ultimately not necessary, they are. But I'm just saying that they can't add one single bit to God's covenantal promise for us. And the only way we can build anything for him is because he first built his life for us. He built us first. Our obedience is a response to his promise, not a way to earn his promise. It's this knowing, this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God that made theologian Walter Brueggemann say of 2 Samuel 7, the chapter we've been reading, this is what he said of this chapter. This is the most important text in the Old Testament. He says, this is the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel Corpus writings right here. Why? Because it's God making covenant with David. Everything that's of value to us comes out of his covenant made with us. 
That's why our church is Covenant Life Church. We don't understand it as well as we need to. We have a far way to go in having a full understanding of covenant. But I would say to you that whoever we are and whatever we are is because of his covenant made to us, not because of what we've done for him. It's also why Andrew Murray could say, blessed is the man who truly knows God as his covenant God who knows what the covenant promises him, what unwavering confidence of expectation it secures, that all its terms will be fulfilled to him, what acclaim and hold it gives him on the covenant-keeping God himself. We are the beneficiaries of this covenant God made with David. You and I, as followers of Christ here in the year 2020, are connected all the way back there to 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God made covenant with David. We're connected throughout history, throughout the redemptive plan of God, throughout the lineage of the house of David. We're connected to that covenant promise. Just like we're connected to Abraham's covenant with God or God's covenant with Abraham, we're connected to this covenant God made with David. But the thing which makes it so much better for us is that it's now the new covenant. It's what God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah when he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the very new covenant that Jesus inaugurated with his own sacrificial death. It's the very same covenant, new covenant, that he instituted with the Eucharistic meal. When he took a cup of wine after they had eaten, and he said, this cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And it's why the Hebrew writers could say, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now listen, when you see that phrase, eternal inheritance, it should get your attention because that inheritance is yours too. That belongs to us too. Not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of the one who mediates this new covenant and what he did for us. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. What you did for me is you purchased a way for me to get in on this thing that you're doing, your new covenant. When we see that phrase, eternal inheritance, It should make us think all the way back to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. All these things that God promised he would do for David, that's ours too. We get in on the same promise he made to David. It's ours. It's each one of us who are in Christ Jesus. It belongs to us. That's why Paul could say to the Corinthian church, for all the promises, remember promise, covenant, the connection. Covenant is based in God's promise. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter 
our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. His promises are true. And he is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping. It's always been his plan to have for himself a covenant people. So let me ask you today. Are you building something God never asked you to build? Is your energy going to places that God never led you to? Even if they're well-intentioned, if God didn't say it, you shouldn't be doing it. Do you hear God's voice? Are you his sheep? But you've not heard the master's voice in a long time. Does it seem like that happened years ago, decades ago? Maybe it never happened. Do you want to hear his voice again? And do you relate to God contractually? Or do you relate to him covenantally? And are his promises making a difference in your life? Is that eternal inheritance that the writer of Hebrews talked about, is that your inheritance? Or do you feel like somehow you didn't get in on that? Somehow that's for somebody else. We need to build what God asked us to build and stop building what he didn't. We need to be those who relate to him covenantally and not like some sort of contractual agreement. And we need to be those who live in the promises of God. For the promises of God are yes and amen. And they are for you today. Those promises, get a hold of them. Stand on the promises of God. Declare them out loud every day. Declare them over your children. Are you worried about relationships that are broken? Stand on the promise of God. Find a promise in the word of God and start standing on it. Write it out. Put it on a card. Put it on your mirror someplace. Put it in your phone so it blinks at you every minute or so. Do whatever it takes, but stand on God's word, not on your doubts and your skepticism. The promises of God are yes and amen. They're for you and your children and your descendants. Start declaring them over your family and over your house. If you're sick in your house, start declaring that he is your healer every day. Many times a day. Declare it when your kids are sleeping. When they're awake, talk to them about the fact. You know what? God says that he's our healer. I know you're sick right now, but we're going to keep standing on the promise that says God will heal us. That the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will quicken your mortal body. That's where we stand, son or daughter. That's what we stand on. Not on what the doctors say. Not on what everybody else says, but what on God says. Let's stand on his promises. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. And he wants us to be covenant-keeping.